Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners, including our colleagues at Tax Banter, Webmartin Consulting and Tax Ed to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Neil Jones, Director of Tax Banter. Neil, welcome to Tax Yak. Thanks, Robin, and it's good to be uh, yakking about tax once more. Which we love to do. We do, yeah. What do you want to chat about today? I thought maybe a good place to start, given this is our inaugural episode of Tax Yak, is looking at State of the Nation. Well, it's a good place to start, and uh, I'll take it back in time a little bit. I don't know if you remember, um, not as old as me perhaps, but in the tax environment, we used to get legislation before it actually started. That's a novel idea. (laughs) It is a novel idea. So the government would make an announcement, introduce the law, and then it would start. So um, things like the goods and services tax, or GST, we had that law in place well over a year before it actually operated. Now, I know that was a major change and part of you know, the new tax system of the Howard government, but it's, it wasn't uncommon to have law before it started. But today, well, what do you think of the today, today's well, world? If I just go back to what you're saying with the GST, I was heavily involved in GST in the late 90s, ahead of that introduction. And not only did we have certainty as to what the law was going to look like, but we had time to prepare. And we're just not getting that now. So we see this process of legislation by announcement or by media release. We do. And, and often it's a, maybe a, a MIFO, you know, the Media Economic and Fiscal Outlook, or it's the budget. So we get the government's announcement of what they're going to do. Then at some time later, we might actually see a, a draft of the law and then eventually it gets into Parliament. And, and that might surpass its application date. So we're operating in that sort of well, the law's going to change, but what's it going to be, even though it might have already happened? So but it's a very frustration. To be fair, they announce something in the budget, and it's prospective at the time of the announcement. Sometimes. Maybe six <laughs> weeks. But the yeah. problem is, by the time we get draft legislation, yeah. policy design, feedback, bill hits Parliament, and then enacted, we're and, years down the track in some cases. And in the current political climate, where you've got uh, to satisfy the minority parties to get your legislation through Parliament, there will be often refinements to the announcement. And so we have changes along the way, whether it be through the consultation process. So what we end up with is not always what was announced. And that, again, adds to the uncertainty of our system. Now, with any tax system, the three attributes you really want is certainty, simplicity and fairness. And I don't think we're getting that certainty at the moment. Some would argue we don't get simplicity or fairness either. But certainly that... um, you know, knowing what the law is before you enter transactions has just escaped our tax system and has for probably over 10 years. But hasn't it always been argued you can't achieve all three of those things at the one time? But it's not bad to aim for it, you know. You, you know like any design of a tax system, if you were trying to be true to the, the tenets of, your, of, of the system, you should be aiming for it. So you might not be able to achieve it because you can't please everybody in terms of fairness, you know. A progressive tax system where we, the more you earn, the more you pay, is you know, clearly not fair. Or perhaps if your social views are that that's fair enough, now, then consul- maybe it is fair. Consultation is a good process. We welcome the opportunity that the government gives us this draft legislation, and then we have these... That's opportunity again, aren't it? Um, chance, thank you. Yes. To provide comments and feedback, and then it can shape the policy. But and again, a cynical view might be whilst it's open for consultation, they've already made up their mind and it's just lip service. But mm. I think we do add, as a tax profession and in all the realms that encompass it, I think we do add to that process and try and make it the best we can. Um, you know, that adage of getting it right the first time is a pretty powerful message, and hopefully, 
um, the people in the tax profession help the government along in that so that we do get it right the first time. We don't often do that. And if you looked at the consolidation regime, for example, I don't think we've had a year when it hasn't been refined since its introduction back in 2002. So nearly 20 years of still tinkering to get it right. So we'll get into specifics in a, a future episode of TaxIAC, and I'm specifically referring to unenacted measures. Mm. But just broadly, what do taxpayers do? What do advisors do when they're sitting here with all these measures which are on their way? I'm still speaking to accountants who are unclear as to where measures are even at. So many think, for example, the $20,000 asset write-off measures have now become law for this year. Mm. And so when you've got measures that aren't yet enacted, what are they supposed to do? Well, I suppose there's a number of approaches. If you're a true conservative of your mindset, you might apply the existing law, which then obviously if it changes, you need to get back and amend and fix it up, and that's more time, effort, energy. But if you're ultimately conservative, I think you'd probably take the view that I would just do my return based on the current and existing provision. If you're a little bit more adventurous and you make a punt on whether that law change is going to happen, then you might anticipate that change and then do your return on that basis. Now, if it doesn't happen, you've still got some work to do, but if it gets enacted as announced, then there's no further work to be done. So I suppose some people will make that judgment depending on what the change is um, and the you know, opposition and whether it's a strong opposition, whether the minor parties will take a different stance. I mean, we've had the dramas this year with the corporate tax rates. Um, so what do you do? Uh, but of course the Commissioner's always been pretty amenable here and you have those alternate courses of action which he, he knows can occur so he always puts out a document that says this is what will happen if it doesn't become law and you go to so whatever position you take the Commissioner I think understands in that area of uncertainty and so there are remedies to fix it without a penalty. I think it's worth noting as well that the tax office operates in the same environment. Mm. So they don't create the law and they're not responsible for whether bills pass or not. So they are also having to administer measures which might be proposed and enacted the same way that we need to work with those rules. And I think they do a fair job on that with their practical compliance guidelines in draft, their draft law companion rulings, which is their view of how the law will operate. Um, they could be a little bit more timely. That would be one of my criticisms. Um, we've seen some things come out now from the ATO on a law companion ruling almost 12 months after the measure was enacted. I'm talking about the first homeowner super saver scheme and the downsizer contribution. So, But to contrast, we've had the base rate entities bill recently enacted correct, yeah. and we've already had a law companion ruling issued in draft yeah, on those and measures. And they moved that a day after it was passed into law. So again, um, that was such a... when. They did act quickly, but that whole issue had been going on for over 12 months. So hopefully they're ready when, when that change happens. So Neil, turning now to the political state up in Canberra, the, the week of the 20th to the 24th of August was in anyone's terms, a big week. Well, you don't often get two leadership challenges in the same week. You know, Sometimes there's a bit of a gap when Keating challenged Hawke. He had to go back to the backbenches for a while. For, I think it was about eight months from memory. Um, I might be staying corrected on that. But, yeah, normally they bide their time, count their numbers and then make a challenge. To do so within three days What's was unusual, yes. The other reason that week was significant from a tax perspective is the Wednesday was the day that the Enterprise Tax Plan Big End of Town tax cuts got defeated, the number two bill. Yeah, so I'm fortunate enough to be sitting at my desk and listening to Parliament at that during that debate and uh, some people might remember that Pauline Hanson at last count changed her mind six times but to hear it from her own in the debate in the Senate where she said, I didn't change my mind, I just had a view one day 
And then the next day I had a different view. Oh, it's entirely different. <laughs> That's not changing your mind. So, um, yeah, so it was a big week, a big week. And on to the Thursday, I was at home working in the middle of the day and I had my screens open, was watching the goings on and the motion came through about the House of Reps being adjourned for the rest of the day, which effectively meant for that rest of that sitting because they uh, then went on to a two-week recess. And I, like many others, presumed that that meant Parliament had wrapped up for the day completely. And then, to my surprise, a couple of hours later, found the Senate was still going and had quietly snuck through the base rate entities bill. Which was good. And uh, Labor had never opposed that in the House. So it was. Uh, I don't know why they couldn't have put that forward to the Senate back in March, you know. Um, but it, you know, took till September. But yes, while all the turmoil was going in the lower house, the Senate would continue to work and, importantly, clarified the tax rate for corporates and the franking rate for corporates for the 2018 year. And given it was three months or two and a half months after the end of the financial year, it was good to get some certainty around company tax rates. It certainly was. And we'll have a chat about that in a future podcast. So turning to the Friday, which was, of course, when the, the second leadership spill happened, and we've ended up with a new Prime Minister in Scott Morrison, of course, previously Treasurer. We've now got a new Treasurer, being Josh Frydenberg, and a new Assistant Treasurer, Stuart Robert. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what does the change in Prime Minister mean from a tax policy perspective? What does it mean from a change in the Treasurer and Assistant Treasurer? And where do you think this leads us for tax and superannuation policy through to the next election? Well, I think it's a chance for the government to reset the agenda. So having had the turmoil and, and our new Prime Minister, Mr Morrison, saying he wants to unite the party, but also having just had a major platform of their 10-year corporate tax plan defeated by the upper house, it probably gives them a chance to reset the agenda. So what I would expect... Um, certainly leading up to next year's election, will be that they will firmly commit to their stated tax policies. So I think there'll be a real, little bit of a resetting. So rather than perhaps tax rates for the top end of town coming down, they might accelerate to that 25%, uh, which we were going to get to by 2027 for all companies under their 10-year plan. We might get that accelerated now for the companies with turnovers less than $50 million. So we might see them as a sweetener, if you like, to uh, drop that company tax rate to 25 cents for the currently enacted measures for companies turning over less than 50 million. Well, in fact, the Fin Review is reporting this morning that there are a couple of options the government's considering ahead of the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook. And both of these involve bringing forward that timing so that the lower tax rate would be available sooner. Yeah, and that's speculation. As we record this podcast, that's where we're at. But uh, whether anything happens between now and, um, say, mid-December when the MIFO is released and the updated State of the Nation fiscally is addressed, whether they can afford that. Um, I think the speculation, Treasury have done some modelling at about $3.5 billion to bring that forward, uh, maybe from 1 July 19. And perhaps it's noting that that modelling had been done prior to the change in leadership. So it was something mm. that they are planning to take to the Senate as a possible compromise when the big end-of-town tax cuts couldn't mm. get through. And now they've rolled it out potentially as a part of a new policy. Well, I think you've got to give Matthias Cormann a bit of a pat on the back for his efforts in trying to get the crossbench senators to come over to his way of thinking. But ultimately, it would look like it was going to fail. So they canvassed other options. I mean, you might recall they were contemplating an amendment to take out the four banks. Yes. Um, so, you know, where we land in terms of the company tax rate changes, in my view, we do have to do something about lowering our company tax rates because we're just not going to remain internationally competitive. So we do have to address it. Well, this comes back to an interesting point. There's been some commentary in the last few weeks since all this has been defeated in the Senate. I'm, I'm talking big end of town. 
that the whole objective, if we go back two and a half years ago, was the government wanted to reduce the corporate tax rate to increase our international competitiveness and bring in our foreign investment, etc. And what we've ended up with is a, a two-rate system, below 50 mil you're on one rate, 50 mil and above you're on another, and the companies that are getting the lower tax rate typically don't play in the global space. And the ones that do are still sitting on 30%. So the signature policy of the coalition, the current government, was that they were trying to, in fact, get the complete opposite. I'm not saying they were trying to put the lower companies on a higher tax rate, but they were trying to bring the big companies mm. down, and, and that's ultimately failed here. It has, and that leads to what else can we do to stimulate that and attract that foreign investment. So, uh, you know, you'd think through innovation, but, you know, um, Mr Abbott's former Prime Ministership was going to be based on an innovative government, but if you look back, the R&D concession has been impaired rather than improved. Um, so, yeah, what will they offer as a carrot to attract that foreign investment? It's, it remains to be seen. Maybe they'll address that in the mid-year numbers as well. And going back to our earlier comments about measures taking a long time, we talk about innovation package, measures about stimulating the economy in relation to things like the similar business test and being able to self-assess intangibles. I mean, those measures have been sitting before Parliament for a long time now. They have, and uh, we're getting. I'm getting comments in my training sessions about the differential company tax rate causing all sorts of anomalies, where, particularly flowing through interposed entities, um, trusts and the like, because um, the Commission has taken the rather technical view that non-portfolio dividends are only available between companies, and we do have a lot of structures out there where the companies are owned by trusts who receive dividends, and that will be passive under the new base rate entity passive income test. Agreed, and I've had many discussions with the ATO about that issue over the last 12 months. So I know you're a betting man, Neil. You're often into, into bets with our clients I like involving... a bit of a punt, yes. ...bottles of red. So if you were to say between now and the election, whenever that is, what's going to be the signature policy of the, the government? What will they take to the election? Well, I'm not that good of a punter to probably put some uh, stakes and bottles of red on their signature policy, but uh, they do need to recapture the the, um, the business world um, and do something that will drive their support. Uh, I know we often say companies don't vote, but the reality is they do influence, and we do need to do something for our, our business sector, um, small business particularly, a, an acceleration of the dropping of the company tax rate. But again, how many small businesses are not companies? You know, we're, certainly we're both aware of the number of small businesses that are not corporate vehicles, um, whether it be trusts, um, partnerships or unit trusts or, or even discretion. Yeah, sole traders. Um, so, you know, to drop the company tax rate for that segment to 25 at least earlier than planned may not help a lot of small businesses. So, you know, we've got the 20,000 instant asset write-off. We've got other concessions for small business. Um, could they do more in that space? Maybe they can. But what's going to be their headline tax thing? Of course, you could always buy time. And I've seen that uh, some commentators are suggesting we need to review the whole tax mix. Now, you know, Tony Abbott was going to do that comprehensive review of the tax system. And so with Kevin Rudd. Uh, well, we did get Ken Henry's review in 2009, so I suppose Kevin Rudd did deliver, at least do, a, do the analysis. Unfortunately, they didn't adopt any of his recommend. Sorry, correction, they d adopted four of his 138 recommendations. And then changed one. Um, so, you know, if you're going to review the tax system, I still believe myself that a, a switch to an indirect tax base, to grow the indirect tax base, almost like a user pays, is a better option. So you can lower your personal tax and your corporate tax by switching to your GST, so increase the base and increase the rate. But every time there's a public debate about changing the base or increasing the rate of GST, we know what the reaction of the public is. 
Yeah, I agree. And, you know, the Democrats, we can thank for the carve-outs for the essentials of life. You know, you can't tax food, you can't tax education, you health. can't tax religion, you can't tax health. So the necessities of life, how do you put a tax on that? But I think you know, my, my own view is that GST does provide a, a fair outcome because it is effectively user pays. Okay, I thought we could uh, now move into looking at some of the alternative policies available which Labor would offer if they formed government at the next election. So this is just a bit of a speculation, mm. hypothetical. If Labor wins at the next election, let's work our way through some of the policies they've been putting out over the last year or so. And, just and no a, doubt there'll be more leading up to the election. There will. Just as a precursor to that, though, Robin, I often don't pay much attention to opposition announcements because until they're in government, there's probably no need. But I suppose with the turmoil of the coalition at the moment, it's a fair chance in the speculation that uh, Labor has already won the election next year, so I'm starting to pay a little bit more attention to announcements by the Labor Party. All right, well, I've got a list here, so what I'd like to do okay. is just throw some of these at you and get your response in, on each one. Okay. So, negative gearing. Long talked about since Keating abolished it uh, temporarily all those years ago back in the mid-'80s. We didn't abolish it temporarily, he abolished it permanently. <laughs> but it was only introduced for a very short period of time. Now, uh, it's a brave political party that perhaps restricts the ability to claim your gearing, your interest deductions on monies borrowed for income producing purposes. But if you remember back to um, 85 when that Keating did that, you didn't lose the deduction, it was just quarantining the loss. Um, like a Div 35 mechanism. Correct, like the non-commercial losses for, for individuals and individuals in partnership. So you could... Now, I don't know that it's going to help investment. Um, the reason it was taken away, as I understood it at the time, was housing developments almost dried up. Now, it might have only dried up in Western Sydney, but by stopping negative gearing, it did um, do something to uh, detract from the investment in the community. So whether you do that again, but Labor's announcement, they are only, only going to restrict negative gearing on investments in new residential properties. And when you say new, as in new dwellings or new acquired by that taxpayer? I think, well, again, we'll wait and see the detail mm. of Labor, but as I understood it, it was new developments, so brand new. Okay. CGT discount, they're talking about halving it. So that would take it from its current 50% down to 25 Well, if you go through the tax expenditure statement, now I know that sort of, you know, some people call it Fantasy Island because it's an estimate of the concessions that are provided and the cost. Can we just pause there? Yeah. Uh, listeners may not know what a tax expenditure oh, okay. statement is, so can you just explain that briefly? Well, every budget paper in the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook will have one page in it that estimates the cost of tax concessions in our tax system. For example, having GST free treatment on food. So whatever's good for us will cost the government something. Yes, correct. The R&D concession, the... Uh, and the most significant one at the moment is the main residence. Now, I think that's political suicide to do anything to the Australian family home. Uh, you know, I could talk about the, it's the vibe, it's Marbo, <laughs> it's your <laughs> castle, but I think it would be a brave political party to restrict main residence. They've already done it for non-residents, although that's not yet passed, but they don't vote, so... Again, probably not politically unpalatable, but to, that costs the government the most. And we're talking about $70 billion per year at the moment as an estimate of giving that concession. And that includes the discount capital gain component as well as the exemption. Uh, the discount capital gain is a significant cost to the government. Uh, it was a trade-off for indexation uh, back in 1999 coming out of uh, John Ralph's review of business taxes, but 
Labor's committed to doing it. They, they've announced it and they continue to say that they will reduce the discount capital gain by half. Um, they've already reduced it or taken it away for non-residents back to 2012. They've now taken the main residents away and they are two big cost issues for the government. So I think they're committed to doing something on that. Whether they have some form of trade-off, you know, personal cut, tax cut or something, they say, OK, we're going to tax your gain in a more uh, meaningful way, but here's a trade-off. So they might be a swing and roundabout on that one. And again, I'd expect there to be some sort of grandfathering or commencement date. I don't believe yeah. it would extend to all existing assets. It would be those acquired from yeah, a Labor's had a history of debating um, application dates. When capital gains was first introduced by the Hawke-Keating government, and you thought about, well, OK, it's going to start. What do you do for existing assets? Um, do you tax the gains or not? Well, Hawke won that argument. Um, Keating wanted to tax everything, whether you win, regardless of when you bought it. But Hawke won that debate by saying we're only going to start from the 19th of September uh, 1985. And even then it took a while to say the law, didn't it? It did. Yes. It did. Now, one that's been pretty controversial and affects our profession, there's been a concern following a report that something like 45 taxpayers were able to reduce their taxable incomes of well over $1 million, $2 million down to below the tax-free threshold using something called the tax-related expense. And so Labor's proposing to limit deductible accounting fees and other tax-related expenses to $3,000. Now, whether this has merit or not, I guess one of the things to look at is what effect would that have? If it was only 45 taxpayers who potentially were arranging something to uh, reduce their taxable income, surely the ATO could look at that under audit. And is it the right response to cap everybody's deductible accounting fees at three grand when actually that is being paid to a professional who's going to ensure that the tax return ultimately is correct when it's lodged? That's an interesting policy. It is, and we need to break that down a little bit more. You know, you might have a taxable income of, you know, as you say, around a million dollars or thereabouts and have a high incidence of tax-related expenses, but you might be in a significant dispute with the Commissioner. So the cost of managing your tax affairs, being a deduction under 25-5 of the Act, you know, what is that? Is it is it audit-related costs? Is it seeking opinions? Uh, I don't think it's just for the preparation of return. Often someone looks at that tax-related expense and says, gee, it's cost you a lot to pay your return, but... That expenditure could be all sorts of things. And the general interest charge, which of mm. course is charged on outstanding yeah. amounts due to the ATO, is deductible yeah. and would be claimed at that label. Yeah. So it may well be that you know, a big component yeah. of those amounts was the GIC. I think it's a bit short-sighted. You know, the, the profession and our tax agents and our, our you know, assistance to taxpayers to get it right play an important role in the tax process and the tax function. So I don't know that limiting the fee payable, or sorry, the limiting the fee deductible um, is going to achieve any meaningful outcome. But, do you, you think know, it would encourage more people to do their own returns because if they can't get a deduction <laughs> for more than three, they'll say to the accountant, you do some and I'll do the rest? Uh, I don't think that's the case. I think most people, uh, they either see a tax agent or they don't. Now, I remember back to when we full in, introduced full self-assessment and the uh, tax office at the time said, we need to encourage people, if we're going to make them do it themselves, we've got to give them help. And they brought out something called tax pack. Now, at that time, I think there was a, the ratio was about 50-50 self-preparers and tax agent prepares. After tax packet, it went up to about 85% tax agent prepared. So that document that was designed to assist taxpayers to do it themselves made them run to a tax agent. If we drop the fees 
deductible fees for managing your tax affairs to 3000 will it mean they'll go back and try themselves? I'm not so sure about that. I think most people today are either comfortable doing it themselves or they've engaged someone to help them do it. Then we've got the technical questions. Is it three grand per tax return? Is it three grand per income yeah. year? What happens if you're preparing multiple years returns at once? Yeah. What happens if you're a sole trader, you're not claiming it? At that label on the tax return, it's going to be in your business and professional items. Yeah, a lot of the detail again. We're, we just opposition don't have. announcements for wait and see detail. For another controversial one, for a three-year period, we had something called the temporary budget repair levy. Now, this was brought in by the coalition, and I think believe it was Tony Abbott, in order to restore the budget to try and improve uh, the fact that we we're uh, so in deficit for so many years. It was designed to last for three years. It did last for three years and it was removed over a year ago. Labor would reinstate that 2% levy, and that would take top marginal rate back up to 49% instead of 47, along with the FBT rate. So your opinion on the merit of that policy? Well, again, you've got to draw a policy. has got to have some objective. It's to get us back in the black. Well, if you believe the budget numbers, we're going to be there soon anyway. So maybe the need for that budget repair levy, rather than calling it a, an increase in tax, just call it a levy. Um, we've had various um, increases over the journey. Things like the gun buyback was funded by an increase in the Medicare levy. Um, the budget repair you know, was, a, again, a, a supporting levy. Wasn't there um, a levy also for ANSET years ago when the airline collapsed? I believe there was a, a levy to try and provide some support. You're testing my memory, Robin, but maybe there was. Um, but yes, so and the state government here in Victoria has done things like to get us out of a budget uh, quagmire by you know, three cents a litre on petrol and so it has been something that's worked in the past but it's got to have the, the absolute need is to do it so the reason for doing it has to exist and if we're going to get back in the black as the current government's budget forecasts say we will a year ahead of time maybe there's no need for that. All right a couple of superannuation policies that Labor has put forward we've had a lot of tinkering with super and we will have another longer chat about that in a separate podcast but if we look at the current non-concessional contributions cap, it's now set at $100,000. Labor spoke prior to the last election about dropping that down to 75000 So once again, what is the merit of a, a cap being lowered down to 75000 for non-concessional contributions? Well, I think any super reforms, the government's always going to be conflicted. We've got an ageing population, a rapidly ageing population, so the need to provide for the years in retirement is getting greater and greater and greater. So there should be a nest egg available to them. So we should be doing everything we can to encourage people to put money away for super, but the third and fourth highest tax expenditure that we talked about earlier is in relation to superannuation. The fact that we give a person a deduction for putting it in without a cap, but if you exceed the cap limit, is a consequence, and we tax them concessionally once the money's in there. So there's a conflict between, we have to make you provide for your own retirement, but it costs us money. So reducing the amount you can put in is one method of reducing that tax cost, if you like, of the cheaper concessionally taxed environment. Uh, so that, yeah, But we want people to provide for their retirement. So there's that conflict, and that tension's always there. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that I could have tax effectively put in about $112,000 based on my age rather than just a blanket threshold of which was tax effective. The other policy they've spoken about is what's known as the Div 293 tax. So if you have income above $250,000, you pay another 15% on the contributions when they're made to the fund. Current threshold, quarter of a million dollars, but Labor's talking about reducing that down to 200000 
which means more people would be paying a 30% rate effectively on their super. Yeah, and again, the same principles as we just talked about. You know, it, you, you don't want people getting the tax concession who perhaps don't need it. So the wealthy originally set at 300000 and it wasn't a uh, an extra tax, if you remember. Div 293 does impose a, a liability, but it's talked about in terms of a reduction in your concession, which I think is magnificent political speak and something Sir Humphrey would have been proud of coming out of Yes Minister. In other words, we give you a 15% tax rate on your contributions into super, therefore you're normal, if you're a high income earner, you should be paying 45, therefore you've got a concession of 30%, so we'll halve your concession. Uh, where that threshold kicks in, you know, from 250 down to 200, maybe that's, you know, a trade-off again. What do they do on the other hand? Do we reduce personal tax rates? Well, on that note, with personal tax rates, of course, there is a proposal by 1 July 2024 that the top marginal tax rate of 45% would kick in at 200000 mm-hmm. So that seems to neatly line up with yeah. Labor's potential policy. Yeah. And again, I, you know, there are some wealthy people in Australia who resent paying any tax. There are some who are happy to contribute because of the amount of money they earn. So, Is there a broader issue here about governments amending super? And it seems that there is this ongoing statement coming out of Canberra that says, we've got to stop tinkering with super, but right after we make this next amendment. And I think people would just welcome a bit of stability and a bit of consistency in superannuation laws without them being changed on what is now becoming an annual basis. Uh, True. I think it'll be tinkering now more than substantial, substantial reform. Um, we had Peter Costello in 2006 with significant changes, making simpler super. Uh, Scott Morrison's first budget making fair and sustainable changes to super. Uh, I think you know the big, big ticket items I think have been dealt with. So I think it will be just tinkering at these edges with uh, the numbers, you know, the level of the caps and at what point does that extra t- Div 293 tax kick in. But I think if I was a betting man, and you've already alluded to the fact that I am, I think the next significant superannuation change might be a restriction on lump sum withdrawals. In other words, cap how much you can actually take at once. Given our longevity, uh, to manage against that longevity risk, you know, that you take all your money, you blow it on poker machines or a trip or whatever it is, and then come back and stick your hand out for a government pension. So I think the next, if I was, as I say, a betting man, I think the next significant change in super would be to limit how much people can access in terms of lump sum withdrawals. Well, as you alluded to earlier in this podcast, uh, you're probably closer to retirement than I am. <laughs> and I ouch. Don't have, ouch, very ouch. I don't have a lot of confidence that by the time I get to 60, there would be tax-free super available through withdrawals. I would be amazed if that policy is still in place by that oh, stage. Oh, I'll actually have a wager on that one because I think that they're locked into that post-60 tax-free. They might restrict how much you put in, how much you can take out, but I think... Which used to be known as the reasonable benefit limit? Yeah, RBLs were around and mm. they sort of restricted how much you could have in there. But So we'll see what happens. But yeah, I would not, not be surprised if they uh, that would be my gamble on the major reform to super in the future. Okay, thank you. Now the next one really is an unknown both from a Liberal and a Labor perspective. The depreciation policy, so instant asset write-offs for small business entities, currently available below $10 million turnover. And there's a, a question on this at the moment. The government is proposing that your write-offs available under $20,000 for the cost of buying an asset, but the current law is actually only $1,000 because that bill remains before the Senate. So leaving aside that particular issue for the moment, Labor has indicated they would bring in some sort of permanent accelerated depreciation policy. 
And in this morning's FINRA review, there's been a report that the government is thinking of extending the current $20,000 asset write-off arrangement. So I think in either direction we might see some changes here, but would you like to see a permanent fixture in our tax system that allows assets able to be written off? Well, if you're prepared to do it for one, two, three years, why not make it permanent? Now, I've sort of said to people in uh, discussing the 20,000 instant asset writer for small businesses, the reason it's not made permanent is that every year you get to make a good news announcement for a small business. That's a very that cynical approach. But it's it's pretty true. You know, will it go back to 1,000? I don't think it'll ever go back to 1,000. Now, the history was 1,000, 5,000. Six and a half thousand, back to a thousand, then jumped up to twenty thousand. So it has sort of been constantly amended and tinkered with. Um, Labor's policy, as I understand their announcement, is everyone gets twenty grand for assets they buy, and the balance, if it's in excess of that, will then be depreciated over its useful life. So you can buy a hundred thousand dollar asset, write off twenty, and depreciate the balance. Yeah, I'm a carpet manufacturer, and I'm you know buy a great big loom, a weaving loom and I get 20 grand up front and the rest of it apportioned over the life of the loom. And just to point out the obvious, we're talking about timing only. You're not getting a deduction you otherwise would not yeah, have got. correct. But that's like any capital allowance. It is just to write off the cost over a period of time. Yeah. It's not true economic decline in value, but that's the language we use. Now, the next policy, there was a little bit of detail provided by Labor around a year ago. Trust distributions. We know that they dealt with miners many years ago by capping the amount that you could distribute to a miner, $416. We tinkered around for a little bit with low income tax offsets, but again, some years ago that was removed for those minor beneficiaries. And so they all they can get tax free is 416. But there has been an opportunity if you run a business through a trust or investment activities, you've got adult children, they might be on relatively low incomes, they might be at uni studying, they might still be living at home with you. You could use multiple tax free thresholds by distributing amounts to various beneficiaries out of your trust, whereas if you derive that income in your own name only, you would be, of course, subject to the one tax free threshold. So Labor is proposing a minimum 30% tax rate on trust distributions made to adult beneficiaries so that they can't utilise multiple tax free thresholds through that trust structure. Where do you think this policy would take us? Well, it would question the structures that people use for their investments and businesses. So at the moment, discretionary trusts are fairly common, fairly predictable. It allows for a whole range of good business outcomes, um, protection of the assets, uh, both of the owners of the business and the um, the business assets themselves. Uh, you do have the opportunity to uh, get a range of tax concessions unavailable to others. But to, to make a broad statement that any adult beneficiary is going to be taxed at a minimum of 30%, so regardless of the level, the trust distribution. So again, it adds to the complexity of the system because that taxpayer may have income from other sources, which is taxed at ordinary uh, progressive marginal rates, but then that trust distribution has to be taxed at a minimum of 30%. So it does add complexity to the system. Have you got any sense of how it would work mechanically? Would this operate as a withholding tax? Would it be a top-up tax payable by the beneficiary? There are many different models they could use, and we haven't got that detail yet. No, and again, that will come through consultation. I would expect what achieves the policy objective, um, that you know, receiving a trust distribution is a effect of legitimate income splitting, and therefore you cannot get an advantage out of that by, as you suggest, you know, multiplying the tax-free threshold. So. One way would be to impose an obligation on a trustee to collect that source. In other words, when you make a distribution, make a beneficiary presently entitled, you also have an obligation to remit the tax. So it could be done through a withholding collection mechanism or it's just going to be tax return software. 
So a de- designated label on the tax return leads to a tax at a minimum rate of 30 cents in it all. And it raises an interesting question because under the base rate entities bill, which has just received for other cent, it is possible for a corporate beneficiary to receive income from a trust that comprises business income and be taxed at 27.5%. So there could be an incentive to send distributions increasingly to companies because of that lower mm. tax rate, which would be below the minimum 30% that Labor's prescribing for adult beneficiaries. And so then do you then the natural progression is look at what comes out of a company and trace back. And, you know, so does it retain its character or flow through? So, again, you know, a broader review of the tax system might decide that, as other nations do, you end up not taxing the company. If we we talk about franking in a second, I'm sure with Labor's policy of denial of franking re, uh, credit refunds. But yes. you know, you, the purpose of imputation is to eliminate double tax. Well, one way you could do that is just have a company not taxed at all. So pure and flow-through. pure flow-through vehicle, a tick-the-box like they do in New Zealand. So, you know, there are other options in our tax system, but we need to step back and have a look at that rather than this piecemeal approach we're taking at the moment. So that takes us to the last on my list, which is unquestionably the most significant Labor policy, and this is the proposed denial of refundable franking credits, which has been announced by Shorten to take effect from 1 July 19. Mindful that we are more than likely going to be at the polls by then, and so the question is, you know, are we going to have any firm policy in place? Would this be delayed? But leaving all that timing aside for the moment, this is a hotly debated topic out there. There are self-managed funds that are making some very, very, or receiving some very sizable refunds in respect to these refundable credits. Mm. So policy-wise, how does this sit? Well, again, as I just stated, you know, the purpose of imputation was to remove the double taxation of company profits. So a company earns money, pays its tax, distributes those after-tax profits to its shareholders they're taxed again, but you should be getting some recognition for the tax that the company's paid. So imputation was designed to do that. We are only one of two nations left with an imputation system. Can you name the other two? Uh, New Zealand and Australia. Only two. No, I understood there were three of us no, in the There used world. to be Malta has, I think, removed their imputation system as well. Uh, so we're down to that, and but we've done more than eliminate the double tax. You know, if my tax bill's set at, you know, 20 grand, and I get 25 of imputation credits, well, I've, ignored, I've eliminated my double tax of the 20, but then they give me the five grand back as a check, and I get cash in my hand. So we go beyond the elimination of double tax. Now, I've had a few debates with people who don't believe my logic works there, that the tax has been paid, it should be, all of it should be relieved, and therefore the refunding is quite within that policy announcement. I think we go beyond the elimination of double tax. We go far beyond it. Well, it depends whether we're trying to eliminate the double tax or we're trying to assess, ultimately, that dividend at the marginal tax rate of the shareholder, mm. which is and what the refundable franking credit gets us to. And in a super fund with a concessional rate of tax, that leads to a massive amount. So if you looked at company tax collections or payments, that is not the amount of money going to the government because of the significance of refunding that company tax through the imputation system. So I think Labor are committed. It's how they sell it. It's how they sell it. The message is going to need to be spot on. Otherwise, it will be a a devastating political blow to them because, as you say, a lot of self-funded retirees rely on those imputation benefits flowing through for a refund at the end of every tax year. Although, given that, can you comment on this aspect? We've got a lot of self-managed funds out there that are subject to what is now known as the transfer balance cap. So we've got the $1.6 million limit on how much can be held in pension phase or retirement phase. Mm. So there will be, ironically, some super funds that are now paying tax that weren't because they previously were 100% retirement phase, 
will therefore these franking credits. So Shorten does deny the refunds of franking credits. There will be some super funds that will be lesser impacted the more balance they hold in those funds. Correct, and, uh, and, and I think that was part of the reason for bringing in that cap under the fair and sustainable measures. Um, it seems to be a magic number of the government, but 1.6 million is, seems to be this magic number that, you know, that'll get you your exempt current pension income. In other words, yes, we'll give you a concession, but only up to a certain limit. Uh, some strategies adopted out there are trying to get perhaps split your retirement interests so that you have more than one superannuation fund. Uh, Commissioner likes to know and understand fully why you might need two self-managed super funds. That's on his radar as a cause of concern. Um, so there's a few things around planning to try and prevent that if it comes in. But uh, again, the tax man will be fairly um, attuned to those sort of structuring arrangements and concessional treatments. All right. Well, that's the end of my list for the moment. I've no doubt there'll be further labour policies announced in the uh, the period leading up to the election. So, Neil, I want to thank you very much for your time uh, and joining pleasure, me this Robert. podcast. Uh, thank you all for listening to this episode of Tax Yak. If you'd like to connect with us on social media or let us know what you're thinking or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time.